Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. I'm trying to be gentle with the intros because you told me that I keep clipping because I'm so excited every time we start. I mean, I always appreciate the enthusiasm, but, uh, you know, just trying to keep the production quality. I'm sure everybody's ears do not, (laughs) right? (laughs) Do 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 do. Hi, Olivia. With that like a aggressive bear growl too. Oh my god. It's a very oh, loving. That's great. Bear that's growl. great. Shoot, we have a lot to talk about today. We had a great workshop this weekend that we got to we got to acknowledge. It was so cool. It was so we I'm sure you saw in the many emails that we sent and all of our social medias, we did a workshop with Spline, which is a very cool 3D program to you know make 3d illustrations animations stuff like that and it was it was a whole lot of people it was yeah. wild like tech yeah. overload on my end running all the tech side it was it was crazy uh and very exciting yes absolutely lots to be learned in those two days i was so impressed alejandro the founder of spline was leading the workshop alongside Freya mareb who is a designer and community builder there they were great i mean they taught you so much about 3d great if you didn't know anything about 3d you certainly got an intro to all the moving parts i loved it i learned a bunch during it too i I have fun in spline a lot outside of the workshops, so um, I'm certainly using my knowledge. And there was a bunch of really cool examples of people's work that was yeah. made during the weekend, which was like incredible to see. We love seeing. Yeah, it. I, I definitely wanted to give a shout out to all the people who were like brave enough to make something in a few hours and then share it on social media and tag people. Some of those illustrations were just so cool, and yeah. I, and I definitely respected that. I, I had a couple favorites. You had a couple favorites. I don't know what they were off the top of my head, so we can't give you a shout out. But they were great, and we definitely retweeted it. So check some Twitters if you want to see some cool examples of like type illustrations in 3D. Yeah. And yeah, I you know it was it was cool. I, I think for me because like we have been working so hard on making regular workshops with really awesome instructors from like diverse backgrounds of you know skills, locations, types of people, anything that we can kind of think of that that we know everybody would love and it was cool because it was the first one that we were financially able to do for free and Mm -hmm. so that was really cool to see like a ton of people in there learning stuff for free and it was it was just cool to be able to like have a sponsored workshop that was still helping the league keep going and helping everybody else for free so i just wanted to shout it out no, I love that. And we've got an awesome workshop programming coming to everyone's mm. way. Before we dive into an upcoming workshop, I did want to preview the Nerd Alert because yes. it is, it's October. It's October. It's getting a little bit cooler. And with October, it's also spooky season. And while I'm not an obsessive Halloween person, as I know they exist out there, I'm in the spirit. I have some pumpkins framing my head behind me uh, on my mantle. And I really actually was like, okay, how can we bring spooky things to 
the podcast. And I've been wanting to do a nerd alert about Victorian typography and the Victorian graphic design style in general. And I was like, oh my God, Victorian typography and graphic design is kind of associated with Halloween. So mm. I'm doing a little history deep dive into the history of Victorian typography, how it contributed greatly to some design styles we see today. And then like also how Victorian things got associated with Halloween because it just like wasn't Ooh. always the case. And there's a really interesting backstory there. Ooh, what a good tease. Now I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I forced you to include a cool YouTube related to all of this that is a tutorial. So I think that'll be fun too in Absolutely. the newsletter. So much fun. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into that as well. All right, Micah, what we got up first? Oh, actually, you know, speaking of workshops, we have our next workshop. We are extremely excited about this. Uh, so this is with... Dan Cedarholm, who, if you don't know the name, was one of the original founders of Dribble. I've been a huge fan of his design work for like a decade. And he does amazing design work. And during the pandemic had kind of started, he'd been like taking walks by this. I, I distinctly remember the inspiration that he posted. of like this cool old signage from a bank that was in his mm -hmm. spooky town of Salem. And, and so he was like, you know what, I want to like try making a font. And he didn't know how to make a font. I'd never made a font before. And so I think at this point now he's on maybe his third font, second, third font, something like that. He's made a couple now. And he just had this really unique and approachable perspective of like how to make a font from a designer's eyeball who had never made a font before. And so when we talked to him, we were like, we got we to gotta share that. Like, I think that's a really useful approach to making fonts when everything often feels so intimidating. And you talk to him about the way that he does it. And it's kind of just like, oh, that's cool. I can do that. And so we're real excited. It is called Making Your First Font with Dan Cedarholm, of course. And there's, there's a couple awesome extra features to this. Besides it being the amazing Dan Cedarholm, and besides us kind of covering how to make a font, even if you have no experience, it's going to be kind of our, our first one where it's really tying into like drawing from inspiration in real life, which I think is very cool. That's the thing that I've, I've kind of wanted to talk about for a long time. And then on top of that, he flippin' wrote a book about it called 20 Bits I Learned About Making Fonts. And for anybody who joins, which... Granted, when you join, you get a recording of the two-day workshop, as always, even if you don't show up. But he's also giving away free digital copies of that book, which I just think is really generous and exciting. And you have the book, right? Like the yes. physical verb. I have the physical book. I think it's, you know, we have to say that Dan is a super talented designer. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he, he is really good at graphic design and using typography and has been for such a long time. You can check out his work at Simple Bits. But the book is beautiful. I mean, the book is bound beautifully and the pages are set beautifully. It is so beginner friendly. He's has so many accolades, except he, he brings everything to like a beginner friendly language and has a casual like demeanor about him. He's really into puppets so please check that out his puppet making <laughs> right. if you haven't right. but yeah i have the book it's great uh, i think this is gonna be such an awesome workshop i'm really really looking forward to it the workshop will be october 23rd and 24th i'm gonna double check oh. yep those are the dates and it will be 12 to 1 30 eastern if you can't make the time still sign up we'll send you the recordings 
$69 for non-members, but $59 for league members. And if you're not a league member yet, you can still sign up and get that discount. <laughs> yep. So that's super exciting. Very cool. There is a link included in the newsletter, and we will be talking about it for until it happens. So yeah, happy. Let us move on to the cool things we found this week. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm very excited about this next link we have. It's from FemType, which I'm already a fan of. Some great reporting on female design work in the design and type industry. So it's titled Bumpy, the brand new variable font, breaking stereotypes and gender norms. It's from Beatrice Cacciotti. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. And it's her work, Bumpy. The type is called Bumpy, the font. And it's a really interesting, first of all, design of the letter forms are very interesting and like you can just stare at for days. I think <laughs> the research behind the typeface is great. I love that she kind of looks into type from a sociological point of view, from a history point of view, gets neuroscience in there. She has this amazing anecdote where she talks about William Morris, the famous kind of designer from the arts and crafts movement. 20th century, which I'm a big fan of the work he's made. But he actually was one of the first people that started kind of gendering typography in a negative way. He talks about how a lot of like modern typography that he was not a fan of at the time before the arts and crafts movement came about said that they were excessively ornamented, light and feminine. And so, you know, I think that has manifested itself in many ways throughout, you know, type history, especially as we get to contemporary day of what, you know, what typefaces are used to market things towards women, to men, how type is described in ways uh, that, you know, maybe a typeface that's light and kind of airy and elegant will be womenly. And then a typeface that's really handsome and sturdy might be described as kind of more masculine. So how we break those stereotypes, I think, is kind of an important question we should be asking ourselves as we're moving, moving forward as type designers. And, you know, this is this is one more interesting example of a variable font just doing something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And it's cool because, I don't know, a couple years ago, I was definitely smack talking all the variable font stuff, right? Like variable fonts were new and it was like, why do we even need this? Who's making us care about these things? But the more accessible it's become to make these things for type designers the more creative type designers have become with it. And I definitely mm -hmm. appreciate this. You can immediately see this when you look at this article talking about it, how creative the variations are mm -hmm. and how creative you could be by using that infinite slider between these two crazy extremes. Mm -hmm. And I think in almost humorous way, Beatrice, the designer, has samples of the type on her website and she uses phrase like, women are bad drivers, are girls like dolls, and kind of yeah. showing how her typeface can subvert those meanings is like a really nice touch uh, to bring the messaging home. And so I guess it's not available yet, right? Like it's going to be available soon, is what it says, mm -hmm. on type mm -hmm. department, which is mm -hmm. honestly new to me. I don't think I've ever noticed type oh, department before. I know type department. I think they might be run by Amber Weaver, who runs FemType. I think they're they're kind of, co <sighs> they coexist together in similar circles or maybe sibling companies it, to not gender. It seems like, <laughs> like all of these things, you have to like click on one link to find out what that's about and then in the about like you have to find the about page and they click on some other link that is referencing some other company that like it's just such a 
a wild path to find out information about this, but they seem very impressive is my word that I'm going to use. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's It's linked to in this, so you can check it out. Yeah, I think they also link to Beatrice's personal portfolio website where you can she has the typeface in her portfolio already just not available mm-hmm. yet to download not in retail yet um, not ready to wear if you're a fashion person <laughs> speaking of fashion oh my god beautiful transition proud of myself the next <laughs> article we have is really interesting it is by d march i'm assuming a blog i don't know it but here we go. It's titled New Luxury Fashion Brand Logos Suggest Creativity is Officially Dead. So I think people have been talking about this for a bit, how in recent years, a lot of these like high fashion luxury houses like Givenchy, Yves Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, Burberry, they're all switching their logos to be these like really super no fuss, sans serif, all caps logos. And they all look very, very similar. Like, I like they could all be the same font for all I know, just like tracked a little bit differently at different scales. Right. I don't know. So, you know, this, I think this article, like, yes, it presents what's happening, but they actually talk to someone in the fashion industry, which I think is pretty interesting about this change. They talked to Samuel Willett, a Sydney-based designer um, who has an expertise in fashion. And he says that the minimalism and branding and typography is being employed to allow the brand to remain fluid in a digitally led space, which fine. I don't like really buy, to be honest, like you don't need to sans serif logo to make yourself fluid in a digital space. But then I think it's pretty interesting. He later goes on to say that the implementation of minimal logo types act as an anchor for communication across divergent narratives while giving each creative director a metaphorical clean slate free of any past associations of history i think like fashion in general is a little bit loaded like it's a very exclusive gatekeeping industry that isn't super sustainable and isn't exactly aligned with a lot of the values that people care about these days and i'm curious like when he talks about this metaphorical clean slate like is it meaning that like these minimalist logos like allow themselves to detach for any like potential negative press that they had in their background or like kind of conspicuous consumption of the past and trying to like appeal to like the new luxurious class that maybe doesn't want to be as showy showy with their brands and like that's wants, interesting wants to like feel like the brands they choose to buy are aligned with whatever moral high ground that they have <laughs> i i have an opinion on this Yes. Which is interesting because this is just coming up in my brain now. But uh, a weird side note, personally, like I have always been really fascinated by luxury anything. Just like the psychology behind luxury is so drastically different from the psychology behind other business, like selling anything else. That has always been super curious to me. And actually, I actually went to school. This is like a fact I don't think anybody on the internet knows that I went to school for a few months trying to get like an MBA in luxury hospitality, which gave me like this very weird, interesting insight into the way some of these brands are thinking because they had like guest teachers from like CEOs of luxury brands coming in and like teaching us stuff. And that was a lot of setup to say, my opinion here is that this blank slate is not that they recognize that the ideals of of the new generations are different than past generations. I think it's okay. legitimately that they have no clue. Mm. They are like these old companies that do not know. And so a blank slate, I think, gives them the opportunity to be like, you know, what? let's just try these like 
20 different things because we have no idea what people are going to respond to anymore. That's my two I cents. I like it. I like it a lot because they just that... they don't know. They don't know. Yeah. Like the psychology yeah. is no longer the same as it was the past five generations. It just literally One... is not anymore. I totally agree. I think they make some interesting points in this article too, talking about like, why wouldn't these brands that have been around for maybe even a century in some cases care about the heritage that they're linked to? I think we're in a world where a lot of people maybe aren't necessarily caring about that heritage as much or don't even respect it as much as they used to. Yes. I was going to say, I don't think it's that they don't care. I think it's that they actively do not respect it the way that previous generations have respected it. And for good reason, in my opinion, as a yeah. jaded millennial. But yeah, uh, that's the point, right? Like our generation and the next generation and the generation after that, which are starting to become semi-adult humans, we're all freaking like fed up of the way that the older generations have run stuff for so long. And I know this, this is, we, we don't, we don't usually get this political and like opinionated on here. So this is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And this is certainly not trying to, you know, crap on anybody who is older than, you know, either one of us or anything like that. It's just a matter of like society's ideals are changing with each generation. That's always been true. And the younger generations of today are pretty fed up with the way that the last few generations, including us, <laughs> my generation, mm -hmm. have left things. So that's that's my two cents. That's I loved it. I'm like, <laughs> this, we could like make a whole nerd alert about this because I think it, it's so easy for people to look at these changes in logo designs and be like, ugh it's blanding all over again it's people just wanting to do minimalism it's people that like don't like are just following the trends but i i also agree with you i think there's something rooted in here that is like actually a little bit deeper than like what seems like surface level which i think is so fascinating agreed agreed <laughs> oh so sad you almost wanted to not include this article this week i know i know shame on me i'm glad we did i'm glad we did this is fun <laughs> oh such a such a trip. All right. I'm also curious. I mean, while we wrap that up, I, I'm very curious if there's anybody out there who is listening or on the newsletter or hearing this that has some kind of insight into this industry or even, you know, advertising agencies like working with these brands. I'm really curious if there's anybody who actually knows some kind of information about this and mm -hmm. has their own opinions about that. So. You know, yes. we don't exactly have a ton of ways for people to chat, I guess. But like we, you know, send us messages on Instagram or Twitter or email or something and share yeah. if you if you have any insights on this. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Want to talk. Our next article. Interesting branding point of view as well about Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola tweaks brand with a magical new logo and it's genius. So this is actually like a pretty interesting take on, I believe it's like probably going to be an, an additional logo asset to their brand identity. I don't think they're replacing their logo completely. But for a lot of their, a lot of these marketing examples in this article, they show the Coca-Cola logo and they show it warped. So it looks like it's just a flat vector shape, but it looks like it's being wrapped around a bottle, but there's no bottle. It's just like basically warped text and they're calling this wraparound logo the hug which is like very cute very coca-cola and they show it in different scenarios so they show it like just on top of some coca-cola imagery they show it being used with like illustrators that they're collaborating with basically probably part of a 
campaign. But I think it's like actually a pretty fresh take on like how to rethink a, like a logo asset in a new way, considering Coca-Cola has been around for like a gazillion years. And mm. I think they have really smart people on their brand identity team. And like, this is pretty interesting and pretty inspiring. I think Coca-Cola is also in a league of its own at this point, yes. like one of the you know, top five companies in the world that can kind of go rogue and do anything and it will still work. Mm-hmm. Not because they're invincible, but because they they have such a deep-rooted position in everyone's culture. Like, every mm-hmm. country has Coca-Cola, and it's a deep part of everybody's culture at this point. And so they can experiment well beyond what most other companies can. Mm-hmm. And they do a good job of that. Like, the, the classic trope of, like, they don't sell coke they sell happiness right yes yeah and so uh, this this is seems directly derivative of that like selling a hug is selling happiness Mm -hmm. you know it seems Mm -hmm. exactly related to that thing that we are like they're already in that league of not selling their own product and selling an idea and now they're just selling derivatives of that which is kind of awesome Mm -hmm. i also appreciate how this logo is used in such a diverse way like they have so many featured artists doing their own Mm -hmm. thing behind this logo which is cool Mm -hmm. and i'm super curious this is kind of a little bit tangential but i'm super curious about the secondary font that they have oh okay Uh, i think i mean i did a little digging and it's called unity uh, and i'm not familiar with that font and so I'm real curious, like, this is literally just me looking it up as we're talking, but I'm real curious what what the context is of that font. I'm suddenly finding, I'm suddenly find, it's, an, it's, nice, it's nice that article, mm. Coca-Cola reveals custom typeface, TCC Unity. Oh my God. Uh, and I'm now in a rabbit hole. However, the point was, I looked at it and I was like, okay, I know, I know this isn't Railway. But the A and the L look a little bit like Railway, and wouldn't that be cool if it was some fork of Railway? And I don't oh, know that true. it's not, Yeah. but true. it's probably not. True. <laughs> Designed by Brody Associates. Don't know them. Oh, and TCCC is the Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola company. company. Oh, yeah. In any, way, in any case, it's, it's, it's all interesting because, you know, from a straight graphic design perspective, too, that's like really interesting contrast between... The art and the curved logo and the, like, semi-boring normal font that you can actually read the text. Totally. So, I mean, like... That was a lot of blabbering. Yeah, this warp logo would, like, not pass <laughs> in early days of design school because you can't distort anything. How dare you? So I do enjoy it's, like, a little bit rule-breaking, and but, like, still is, like, really great messaging. And, like, I don't even care that text is stored on the ends because it serves a purpose. And that's what breaking <laughs> the rules is all about. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny how that works? Oh, yeah. Because you're absolutely right. Like, if, if you brought this to a, a class in art school, they'd be like... This is trash. Why would you do this? Yeah. But because it's Coca-Cola doing it and No, really. That's that's literally it. It's because it's Coca-Cola yeah. doing it and because yeah. they came up with a clever tagline that relates to why that is the case. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, this is interesting. Also like we Which... all know that the Coke logo isn't this. We all know the Coke logo so well. We like have probably have those curves of the logo memorized in our brain so much that like we immediately can tell this is this is what they intended to be. Just nuts. Yeah. 
Yeah, Let's. that is. That is, it's cool. It's it's weird and it's cool. Absolutely. All right, Micah, it's time. I'm excited. We don't have a sound still. Oh, oh ghost noises. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes. That was great. Wow. Only, only manual sound effects on the weekly typographic, guys. Nothing. <laughs> Can't get too fancy. All right, guys. Very exciting. I would like to say, if you are interested in this nerd alert that I'm about to say, or you're interested in some of the history, this nerd alert pairs really well with our episode number 67 about the Industrial Revolution that was titled The Birth of Display Type. Basically, Victorian typography emerged soon after the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, so I'll be kind of bringing in some comparisons there but if you want some extra background go check that one out too and with that said let's begin so we are traveling back in time to the 1800s the victorian era uh is you know named because of the reign of victoria in england from 1819 to 1901 what and crazy that's the nerd alert all right. <laughs> That's it, guys. So the Victorian era was basically the latter two-thirds of the 1800s. If you need to be rooted somewhere in time, uh, that will help. So kind of an overarching theme about the Victorian era was that it was like all about strong moral and religious beliefs and proper social conventions and optimism. Basically, all the aesthetics that were kind of created during this time were trying to channel that, yet... All the aesthetics were really jumbled and scattered. Like there were there were certain pillars of the Victorian era, but the Victorian era is also known for like a really eclectic mix of things. And like I think in the end it kind of ended up contradicting this like moral high ground that they claimed to have because like it was so excessive and like so ornamental and actually like wasn't very just like strictly about high ground, etc. So, that's a good place to start. Some things that are really popular in the Victorian era is gothic architecture and gothic architecture having kind of some ornament to it was revived and that was certainly themes from gothic architecture were brought into graphic design but in general a huge part of the aesthetic was just like quote-unquote exorbitant complexity so that's like embellishments elaborate design and furniture woodwork graphic design like it was a very holistic era where you know the furniture could go well with your posters could go well with the architecture there was kind of this holistic feeling to it it was actually influenced from moorish and islamic design to this ornamentation which i feel like is not often brought up in history but like it wasn't it didn't come from like england they were inspired by other cultures kind of embracing this ornament and so the principles of victorian graphic graphic design specifically was actually like really odd it was like all about sentimentality nostalgia this canon of idealized beauty Uh, it featured a lot of images of children's and puppies and flowers (laughs) So like, how do you like imagine? When you say it like that, it sounds weird. Yeah, no, it's weird because like it is, and this is where I'm saying like it was really eclectic. Like they just like threw in a bunch of stuff into this like design aesthetic. And if Victorian typography has a little bit more of a focused kind of aesthetic, but in general, graphic design was all over the place. Partly because the invention of chromolithography. Do you know anything about lithography, Mike? No. Okay. I know it exists. I know it's a thing. <laughs> I took a lithography class actually ages ago. And when I kind of try to do a simplified explanation of it, you might understand why things start looking really different. 
lithography is basically i think litho is stone and graphy is like copy so lithography actually has the method of production in the name you basically would like write on this stone with a with an oil crayon and because the oil didn't mix with the water you got an image that you could print so instead of wood press like wood letter forms or letter presses that you needed to like carve letters into material or mold letters out of metal you could literally draw letters and print them for mass production. There's obviously more technicalities to it, but this basically allowed anyone to invent anything that they wanted to, any production limitations that existed with letter forms before Victorian era were kind of out of the window because all of a sudden, like whatever your hand can draw, you can put on paper and distribute to people. And so Mm. how this specifically manifested itself is that like lines of letters could be stretched out on an arc or they could be at certain angles or they could overlap images for the first time or you'd have colors flowing from the lettering and incorporating themselves into the ultimate like illustration that they're in. So like this is actually very influential to just opening the the different modes of designing letter forms and even those simple principles are just applied even today and throughout the 20th century i think it's really interesting that you know in the industrial revolution so like in the early 19th century the innovation was that like we had display type for the first time which is still like a really big innovation so there was like you know, outlines and shadows and embellishment to typography that before that was strictly pretty much used for text type. But they actually didn't change any basic structures of the letter forms. They were just kind of like adding some things to it. Type was still mostly just horizontal left to right. Wasn't certainly wasn't placed on an arc or like in a fanciful wave or something. And so I think like with chromolithography and with the Victorian era is when we see the innovation of like forms being like pushed to extremes and pushed and being distorted. I mean, we just looked at that Coca-Cola like lettering. Like that is very much an outcome of like what Victorian lettering allowed us to think about was that thinking about things being distorted and existing in a more like imaginative world and not just on like a horizontal and vertical plane, which I think is like Mm. often like we don't think about where that comes from, but that does come from somewhere. You know, I think modern lettering today, a lot of layouts you see, you don't see just like lines of letters stacked on top of each other. It's like, oh, the line has like a wave and comes from an image and like it really allowed illustration and typography to like coexist. So, I mean, because of that, there was like a lot of critics and typography purists that were like really appalled with type during this time because they were like distorting things and like making them wonky. And they're like, oh, like designers are just doing this. So advertisers have new ways to like sell things and foundries have a good excuse to just like be selling more fonts because like they know. It's like directly related to Coca-Cola that we're just talking about. Like, what do you mean? Like, like we were literally just talking about, oh, they're, they're like just distorting this. Mm. Like what we already know. I mean, the Coca-Cola logo by itself is an example from that time period that's been quote unquote modernized, but still it's, that's what we're talking about. Like, like we're just like, oh, they're just distorting it. Right. Like, cause they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting to think like it, like it wasn't that, that wasn't possible before and now just drawing text on a path and in a wave and like different sizes and st- like that's that's wild that's so cool okay sorry continue no i appreciate it. i mean it is it is nuts and it like 
I think, you know, people could compare the era and typography we're in today with like what people were lashing out against during Victorian typography. Like there's people that would be like, oh my God, creative market is just like the end to typography as we know it because, <laughs> you know, like anyone can make anything and they're just trying to make an easy buck. And whether or not you agree with that, like I do think some of these themes of like there being typography purists still exist in our world today and you know what happened after that is the victorian era soon like started to decline during the 1890s and led the way for the arts and crafts movement which was all about like really beautiful classical typography and like beautifully balanced compositions and things being crafted incredibly well so you know i think that's like that's pretty interesting just Went, just went totally opposite direction. Ran away from the Victorian era. Do you have any oh, questions? Oh no, I was about... pointing. I was pointing to all of the arts and crafts era stuff in my home that oh. is in the background behind me. Oh, I know. We should get a like a little showcase of that one of these days. <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean to distract like you. Keep going. No, it's okay. Do you have any like questions about what we just discussed before I kind of move on to like how Victorian style things shifted in the recent years? No, I think that makes sense. I mean, so much of art is rebelling against the art that came before it, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just wild to think that we didn't always have the tools to be able to make illustrative typography and like on a mass scale. And so that was the rebellion. Right. I mean, I kind of think of it like... So do you remember like during the 90s when all of our logos had like three outlines on them and like two gradients and like a swoosh behind it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that reminds me of Victorian typography. It was like the first time that people were like, we can put gradients and logos and we can do all these things because of our technology and like look how ornamental we can make it. And like now like half the half of my projects at work are like, okay, let's take the outlines off the logo, guys. It's a, it's right. a 21st century. <laughs> right. That's so I fascinating. So fun. Okay, so the most fun part of my nerd alert, I think, is talking about like how Victorian design became creepy and like why we think of it <laughs> yeah. as this like spooky thing. Basically, like Americans have a very specific idea of a haunted house. Like, we'll start there. If you Google haunted house, you're only going to be shown Victorian architecture, which is like really nuts. And so it certainly wasn't that way during, you know, the 19th century. But starting in the 1930s, people started positioning Victorian architecture as like kind of sinister. And it was like twofold. There was one reason as like as a society in the 1930s, we were like, oh, we hate Victorian styled things. Like it is just a simple for excessiveness and conspicuous consumption and like we are so much further past that we are so socially progressed we are technologically this is also related to what we were talking about earlier today I oh know. my gosh okay I know. that's interesting I, so I don't think I understood that context yeah like I, I sometimes think of the 30s as excessive like great Gatsby right so well the 20s was fairly excessive too but the 30s was in like 30s and 40s is like when modernism came sweeping through everything and like you know things weren't like totally at like Swiss modernism by the 30s and 40s but like they things were starting to pare back a bunch they were like they really hated the Victorian era and also like as you know as the decades went on people would come back from work a lot of people were resentful for how America was functioning in the 19th century and like it was just like a total kibosh on anything Victorian they're like this sucks so there is that that was happening but like also in like the 19 like 20s 30s 40s a lot of artists decided as a 
collective unit somehow that they were going to start portraying like Victorian style as a symbol of like decay and like creepiness. And so it's not like there was an agreed upon thing, but many different alleys of the arts, like for example, in the 1920s, a lot of murder mysteries were set in Victorian houses. And that's when like murder mysteries Mm. started becoming in vogue. There was artists that were kind of propelling this towards like Edward Hopper started painting abandoned Victorian houses because Victorian houses were starting to become abandoned at this point. And same Mm. with Walker Evans was photographing things all over the country. And he like captured a lot of abandoned Victorian houses. And And magicians. Like I have a lot of past history in magic. And I used to like, I was obsessed with Houdini, who was super well known for debunking psychics and seances in Victorian settings. And so it was like, I I mean, like that was, that was such a combination of what you're talking about, right? Like of, of those things happening in Victorian houses and the magicians coming in and being like, look how fake and stupid this is. Yes. Yes. So interesting. And then like by the sixties is when the Adams family TV show premiered and like really solidified it. Psycho came out very much solidified it taking place in Victorian house. And I think it's insane that like literally almost for a century now, we just like our idea of creepiness is the Victorian era, which was like 150 years ago. For so long. (laughs) Is, I think that's absolutely hilarious. And like, and it's why, like, if you'll see things that have to do with the macabre or something like that, like Ouija boards will probably have Victorian typography on it. Or like, you know, a mm. lot of like Halloween ephemera or like haunted houses or like gates to things will be reminiscent of Victorian era just literally because people hated it and artists leveraged that hate. <laughs> that's so crazy. What the heck? It's wild. It's wild. I lo- I just love how insignificant that is. That's Absolutely. just like they just they just didn't like it, so they were like, you know what? Let's make it look bad. Yeah, hilarious. I love it. So I had so much fun with this nerd alert and this whole podcast this week, Micah. Ugh, such a good time. We, I, I think we did a good job this week. This was yeah. really fun. We got into some political topics that people are probably not going to be happy about. We got into <laughs> we got into like some history that is also extremely relevant and fun. This was Lots this was fun. a good one. This was very fun. This makes me this makes me want to be like, shoot, can we do another one on like gory typography? Ooh, like that's that's yes. less obscure, right? Like it's it's yeah. directly from like horror movies and whatnot. But I bet there's some interesting history there. And yes, like that is also currently considered just bad across yeah. the board, right? Like everybody hates it, but everybody uses it to evoke mm-hmm. a particular emotion. I wonder if it was ever not bad, and I wonder like, yeah. when that started. Maybe we oh can gosh. maybe we can tackle that some other Halloween. Let's do it next year. <laughs> I was gonna say that, and then I was like, oh my god, a year feels like ten years <laughs> from now. But eh. we're almost at podcast one hundred, guys. Oh my gosh. Well, you made yeah. the point that we also have been counting funny this whole time, so you know, <laughs> we might already be at 100, but we're not counting it. I don't, I don't know. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Hope you have, hope this delights you and spooks you and gets you in the October, you know, mindset in a different way. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to be talking about uh, Dan's workshop f- for the next week or so but yeah you might as well grab a ticket and be in there first so we're excited to see everybody in there do 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 do